Let's continue to express our love for God in prayer. Father, as we pause before you right now and continue on with the theme of our praising and our singing, our rejoicing together, thanking you that you are a saving God, a God of salvation. As Duane has rightly noted, we couldn't sing of this unless you were a God with power to save. And you have saved us. And we thank you and we praise you and we love you. And we realize, Lord, that, that love is that expression of the real and genuine faith that you have granted to us. Your word says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Love for you and love for one another. And Lord, we recognize that. And so I pray that you may continue to impress upon our hearts the ability to reflect the love of God in our, in our lives in how we relate to one another, how we relate to you. That we could truly, Lord, say in our hearts that we love you unconditionally because you first loved us and made it possible for us to love you. Lord, I pray that um, you would open up our hearts with a willingness to receive your word, to welcome it. It's um, profitable as a diagnostic tool, as the Holy Spirit does a spiritual checkup in our lives. Because, Lord, you are pursuing in us a perfecting of our faith, a completing of our faith. You are the God who who prunes us that we might bear much fruit. Lord, I pray that uh, we will fully engage with you now as you, by your Spirit, have free reign to probe us, to express exp- to. to Express your your love for us, but also, Lord, to impress upon us the issues that matter to you. Lord, I pray for help, help with, with the presentation of this word. Because the evil one would desire to have many remain deceived. Deceived particularly about real faith versus faith that is not real. And so, Lord, um, in this setting, there is no greater warfare with respect to that issue. Lord, it is the desire of all of our hearts that we would be truly yours. So, please, Lord, I pray, bring with your word this morning the power of your presence among us. Because I ask this in the name of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. trying to understand how the Holy Spirit prompted James, Pastor James of the Church of Jerusalem, to to write this letter. 
And I'm wondering if he was sitting in his study one day just analyzing the issue of faith. Thinking a lot about it. And then thinking about the people that he preached to on any given Sunday. But not only that, thinking about many others within the the young church, the fledgling Christian church. Because we are introduced at the very beginning of his letter that he is writing to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. And so let's understand this very clearly, that James is writing to those who are professing to be followers of Jesus Christ. They have come out of Judaism and they have followed Christ Jesus. And he presents to them at the beginning of chapter 2... The, uh, the reality that it is our glorious Lord Jesus Christ that we are talking about. When we are talking about faith, it's faith in Him, the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. A faith fitting, a King, the King of the universe. And I'm wondering if he was thinking about how his people were responding to such things as tests and trials and and he was noting that among them, among the gathering, there were those who, who faced tests with a double-mindedness. Uh, they, wanted to, um, they wanted to embrace God and they wanted to, to, to not lean on their own understanding but to acknowledge Him. And they, they wanted to believe that, that He could, but, but they were not sure that He would. And, and so there was this double-mindedness about them. They were tossed to and fro. They were not confident in the work of God, and they were manufacturing human kinds of, uh, of uh, responses to the tests and trials they were facing. I wonder if he was looking at, uh, at, his, at his congregation and uh, the people in the, the young church, the young Christian church, and noting how they were handling temptations. And he was noticing that for the with, with many of them, they were blaming God for the situations that they found themselves in and saying, well, God put me in this situation. I have no other way out but to sin. I mean, it's his fault. He caused this to happen. So I can only, the only solution I can come up with is to make myself happy all over again is to sin. And they were becoming polluted with the world. I'm wondering if he's looking around his congregation and noting that in their relationships, they were quick to bite each other's head off. They were short listening, they were quick to speak, and they were very quick to get angry. I wonder if he was noticing that he was putting forth the word of God to his people, yet they were apparently listening. Some of them even complimented him on his sermon, but he wasn't seeing them actually apply the word of God to their lives. There was no changes taking place. And then he was looking at the community as a whole, and he was noticing that when people came into the church, they were demonstrating favoritism. Hello, Mr. Rich Guy, you can sit here. Miss Poor, you can sit here on the floor. And so I think that we get to the point in this letter where he's actually calling a time out. So I think we need to talk about faith. Because what I'm seeing out here is not worthy... Of the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Who's rescued you. And so he's asking the question. Do you have saving faith or are you fooling yourself? Would you turn in your Bibles to James chapter 2 if you haven't already? 
Now, I also believe that James is actually taking a page right out of Jesus' ministry. You remember how Jesus confronted the religious in Matthew chapter 23. He said, now listen, as he's speaking to the crowds and to his disciples, he said, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. They're actually teaching you God's word. They have been granted the authority in the, in the place of teaching. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But... Do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. They tithe, tenth of their spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but they've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And on and on he goes. And, And so James is noting that some of the Things that Jesus talked about were similarities within his own group. Those calling themselves Christians. Now, um, some, of course, have struggled with James' teaching that we're about to encounter. But I want you to, I want you to know a little bit of background so we can, we can dive in full, full scale. Uh, James probably wrote this uh, somewhere before 62 A.D., and And the reason I'm able to say that with great confidence is because he was martyred in 62 AD, so he had to write it sometime before that, then. In fact, um, James is likely to have written one of the earliest pieces of Christian literature uh, following the life of Christ. It is one of the earliest of the Christian ethics that has been written. He probably wrote before almost everything that the Apostle Paul wrote, if he wrote in the mid-50s, which is highly possible. He definitely wrote this particular letter before uh, the disciple John, for instance. And and the reason that he was actually martyred was that the Sanhedrin charged him with breaking the law. Breaking the law in the sense of not... He didn't break the law of the culture or the law of of the, 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 uh, the courts. But breaking the law of Judaism... So there's no way that the Sanhedrin thought that he was teaching a gospel that was, was um, or the Sanhedrin considered that he was teaching a different, a different religion. So he was te- certainly teaching that, that salvation came by grace through faith. Paul, on the other hand, and James was writing to the Christians. He was not writing about how to be saved. He was writing to people who were claiming already to be saved. Now, Paul, on the other hand, was was a missionary, a missionary to the Gentiles, and Paul's letters were fundamentally filled with teachings about how to be saved. It was rightly noted in our prayer time before the service this morning that in every uh, sense of it, Paul and James stood back to back teaching theology. Paul teaching those who were completely oblivious to the things of God and James teaching those who apparently had come to faith in Christ. So with that as the backdrop, I want to uh, read James chapter 2 verse 14 through to verse 26. And it seems to me when you introduce something with our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, maybe we should stand as we read this this morning together. Would you stand with me? What good is it? My brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save him? 
Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. And I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is the word of God. Please take your seats. Now let's be clear that the question that is being asked in this section of Scripture is quite simply this, and I want you to keep it in mind as we work through this this morning. Do you have saving faith? Or are you fooling yourself? It's a very serious matter. Saving faith means that we are destined for eternal glory with Christ. The lack of saving faith means we are not. We are still dead in our trespasses and sins. So it's a very serious question to answer. It's not sort of some intramural discussion of theology that's rather fascinating. And we could go away and and say this was an interesting intellectual exercise. And I'd like to compare Paul's theology of faith with James' theology of faith. And isn't this an interesting discussion? No, no, this is a life and death discussion. James was incredibly exercised as he was writing this, I'm convinced. I want to make sure, he said, that my people have saving faith. I I don't want anybody in the congregation, those who are claiming to follow Christ, to not have saving faith. So do you have it? Now the purpose of faith is salvation. And the evidence of salvation is transformation. And transformation always shows through deeds that come from the heart of God. And I'm convinced that James works this truth backwards in his letter. He says, um, I'm looking, what I'm looking for is deeds that come from the heart of God so I can be convinced that transformation has taken place in your life. Because if I'm convinced that transformation has taken place in your life, I'm going to be convinced that salvation has come to your life. And and if I'm convinced that salvation has come to your life, I'm going to be convinced that real faith has come to your life. Because real faith, the purpose of it is salvation. The evidence of salvation is transformation. Transformation is evidenced by deeds from the heart of God. 
James said, I'm looking for the mercy of God. I'm looking for Christ-likeness in your life. I'm looking for the kinds of things that, that, that only one who loves Jesus Christ would demonstrate. He can't envision God accepting some of the brands of faith, faith in quotation marks, that he is witnessing. So in the face of tests, trials, temptations, relationships, scriptural application, charity, the question remains, is your faith real? Is it genuine? Now he, um, in a most logical presentation here, presents three types of faith. And only one of them is saving faith. It kind of reminds me of someone, somebody told me this one time, you know, there are nine places you can put oil in a car and eight of them are wrong. You know, and, and it's, it's kind of important to know these kinds of things. And so, like Sesame Street, one of these things is not like the other, you know. There's three types of faith that he presents here, but one, one is saving faith. And so he presents with his three types, three different cases. I want to point them out to you this morning. But I want you to keep the question in front of you. Can that faith save you? Now we know that there are many people who live in our cities and our, our, our countryside who, who perform and practice good deeds but they don't have faith. This is not what James is talking about. He's talking about people who claim to have faith. What about them? Case number one, I would say, is this. He makes this case. Words alone are useless. And here's how he makes the case. In fact, he makes this case in the case of everything. Words alone are useless. He says, suppose, notice in, the, in, the, in verse 15, suppose a brother or a sister, they come into your church, or they're one of your church members, and they're without clothes and daily food. And one of you stands up to them and meets them and says, go, I wish you well. Go, I wish you well. You are dismissed. Keep warm and well fed. But I'm not going to do anything about it. They do nothing about it. So here you have this person who claims to be a well-wisher. I wish you well. But wait a second. I'm not well. I don't have the necessities of life. And by the way, the person who, who meets them, they actually tell them what you don't have. Yes, and I know you don't have any food and you don't have any clothing. It's not like the person has told them. They already know. Yes, you're, you're, I wish you well. And by the way, you don't have food or clothing. I sure hope somebody takes care of you, but it's not going to be me. Now, now, all of us know that, that anything that that person said, I wish you well, is all talk and no action, and is useless, certainly useless to the person who has all of these necessities, these great needs. These claim, this claim is useless. It's just words. It's all talk. I think all of us would agree that we don't put any stock in anybody who's all talk and no action. 
And, and so then he, so he says, now, so I have your attention. You all agree with me, right? You agree with me that, that this person, uh, the words that they presented were useless. We all agree with that? Good. Then he says, in the same way, notice verse 17, in the same way, if a person claims, he says, in the same way, faith by itself if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. It's useless. In the same way, he says, if someone claims to have faith, but it's just talk, and there's no action, no follow-through, then that faith is useless. Now, what kind of faith is this? He says it's faith by itself. It's by itself faith. And what kind of faith is that? Really, it's self-centered faith. It's not Christ-centered faith. It's faith where somebody says, well, my faith fits my lifestyle. Uh, my faith really fits my preferences. The faith that I have, really, it really works for my choices. You've heard some people say, uh, well, my faith is private. You ever heard that? Yeah, do you talk to people about their, their relationship with God or salvation or the th- theological things? And they say, well, my faith, I, my, I'm a very, my faith is a very private thing. It's a for me faith. James says, that's not faith. That's useless. That's all talk. That's no action. That's that's not saving faith. He really asks the question, can that faith save anybody? Do you really think so? Does that give evidence that there's really been a genuine conversion take place in that person's life, whereby Jesus Christ moves into their life and is transforming them, and the life of Christ is, is working itself out of their life? If I have no service, I have no mercy, I have no readiness to help, I have no sense of sacrifice in the name of Christ, it's dead. Now, the person, of course, is not finished with the argumentation, so he goes on in verse 18 and says that someone will say, you have faith. I have deeds. That's just the way it is. He says, you know, you come into church and some people say, well, there are people who have faith and then there are people who have deeds. And, and, and you know, you're a great person of faith, but I, I just sort of hang out and I cheer for people with faith, but I don't really do anything. I just, that's my job. I just cheer. James says, oh, wait a second. Show me your faith without deeds. I've never seen this kind of faith. I don't know anything about this kind of faith, he says. And I'll show you faith by what I do. I don't know anything about this all talk and no action stuff. I'm not buying it, James says. Words alone are useless in charity and in salvation. Can that faith save them? He moves on to case study two, verse 19. See, you'll bump into this next person who will say, wait a second, I believe in God. And he says, congratulations. So do the demons. This kind of faith, case number two, is feelings alone faith or knowledge faith, which is deadly. Maybe what you have, James is saying, is really no different than what demons have. 
you know, I, I, I feel like I'm saved because I believe in God. Isn't that faith enough? In fact, in fact, not only that, theological, I believe that God is one. I'm, I'm monotheistic. Congratulations, he said. You've graduated to demonic faith. Demons believe that. I, I don't know what you encounter, but I encounter lots of people who are really hanging their hat on that I believe God exists. I'm going to heaven. I've got it all squared up with God because I believe in God. I I believe that there's a creator God. Yeah, I believe in God. I believe he exists. Do any of us think that demons are going to heaven? Do Do any of us think that Satan and his demonic horde have received salvation? We do not. And James says, in fact, demons believe this and they shudder. Now, by the way, uh, James is making the point here that that demonic theology is better than Hindu theology. Because they believe that there are multiple gods, the Hindus, the Hindu faith. James says at least the demons believe there is one God, God is one. Demons know the truth. They just don't practice it. They don't embrace it. Demonic faith believes right doctrine. Now you might be asking, wait a second, is it possible to believe something is really true, but to do nothing about it? Well, I'll be the test case. I th- and, and you can join with me as you, as you think about your own life. I know that if I were to exercise more, it would be beneficial to me. And I absolutely, 100% believe that's true. I, I believe it's right. But I don't do it. I, I also know that I, that I also believe that, that there are, are special food diets and things that would be way better for me. And I know it's absolutely right. But I don't do it. I think we all know that, that there are, there's huge benefit to, this, to practicing spiritual disciplines in our lives. And we believe 100% that it's right, true. But what good is it to us if we don't practice it? And so he's making this logical argument... That the demons know that there is one God. God is one. But they have not embraced the truth of salvation. Turning from their wickedness. And so he says, they even shudder. They're in fact impacted and influenced by God. The shudder, I think, might be the shudder when God, by his great power, orders them out of something or out of somewhere. Or it's a description of their great fear of God, knowing his power. He says, you know what? You might not have faith that even fears God as much as Satan does. If all you do is believe that there is a God, that God is one. 
You foolish man, he says in verse 20. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Well, he's going to take us into case studies three. Now, by the way, before we get there, I want to make a principle statement that has been, is the fruit of what I think we have here so far. Mere faith is not true faith, is in fact dangerous. Words alone, at the very least, or at the very best, certainly put your claim to salvation in question. And in fact, if you are going on feelings alone, or I just think I'm saved because I believe in God, you need to know you're you're likely lacking in spiritual life. So he says this. I want you to consider two very important and key individuals who are actually examples of saving faith. Abraham and Rahab. And I want you to see in their lives what real faith looks like. Because from James' perspective, seeing in this case is believing. He wants to talk about working faith. He wants to talk about faith that demonstrates itself genuine by what it does. He, he wants to point out that, that the work that God wants to do in our lives and the faith that God wants us to have is faith that exercises trust in God and demonstrates by our lifestyle that Christ is really alive in our lives. That we've really been saved, that we've really been rescued, that we've really been redeemed, that we really are being transformed. As one writer put it, saving faith, which is biblical faith, is always tied to character and therefore action. And and so it it was in the context of extreme trial and testing that both Abraham and Rahab demonstrated that their faith was genuine. And so this makes perfect, the perfect case studies for his church because his people were falling under great tests and trials. And he says this is the case with Abraham and this is the case with Rahab and this is what their faith demonstrated. It proved that their faith was authentic and genuine. In the case of faith, examinations are never based on knowledge. They are always passed by action. Most of our lives we've spent doing examinations that were pretty much based on knowledge. We passed or failed by the amount of knowledge we had. When the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, he says, examine yourselves, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. He wasn't going to give them a Bible doctrine, quest, a Bible doctrine examination. The test of faith, passing the test of faith, is never, ever done by knowledge, but by actions. And so, he says here, was not, verse 21, our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did 
when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. Abraham went beyond believing God existed to believing that God mattered. That's what set him apart. That's what, set, that's what sets all of us apart who claim to have saving faith. Because the writer of Hebrews defined faith in Hebrews chapter eleven six, didn't he? Wasn't it stated there that faith is believing that God is? And then does he stop there? Please say no. No. And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him or, or, or who follow hard after God. It is the belief that God exists, which is what the demons do. But you've got to take it to, and he rewards those who diligently seek after him. And so Abraham went beyond believing God existed to believing that God mattered. Taking God's word seriously. This act, this example in verse 21 of the near sacrifice of Isaac was an example of taking God's word seriously. It was an example of what saving faith looks like. And by the way, he uses three vignettes of Abraham. He speaks of Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, and Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. And he gives us a full perspective of the varied orb of faith in Abraham's life. He gives us the total package deal. In Genesis chapter 15, it is where Abraham encounters the living God and God promises him a son. And God makes a covenant with Abraham. And it says there that Abraham believed God and God credited him as righteousness or he declared him as one who followed the right ways of God. And it was at that instant that Abraham embraced faith. In Genesis chapter 18, we, we find that there's a situation where God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And so three visitors come to see Abraham because God is going to, is, is going to share his heart with Abraham. And Abraham at that moment looks at the three travelers and says, you have need of food you have need of shelter. I wish you well. Go away. I hope somebody else takes care of you. Not in your life. He says, Sarah, get the fatted calf and make a roast beef dinner. We have some guests. And it's declared there that Abraham is God's friend. This is what James says of him. He's God's friend. In Genesis chapter 22, God asks Abraham to do the hardest thing that he's, in the scriptures that anyone I think has ever asked to do, to go and sacrifice his son Isaac. Now, I'm not talking about that this morning, although I know that's a, a, a question in our minds that has... has, has um, has worked on us for years as to why would God ask Abraham to do that? Well, there's so much 
theological reality to it. We all know that, that God was picturing for himself the, the future whereby he would give to us his one and only son as a sacrifice that we might understand that we as humans could understand the gravity and magnitude of that sacrifice to climb inside of Abraham's skin and feel it. But understand this, that all of that also was in a context The surrounding pagan nations were busy sacrificing to the gods. Sacrificing animals to the gods. And thinking, if we go to the highest level to sacrifice a human to the gods, surely the gods will receive us. And so God takes his champion to the edge of human sacrifice. And displays and declares to all the pagan nations around, I don't want human sacrifice. I want faith. I want people to trust me. And so he stops them when the knife is here. And offers a sacrifice in the thickets. James says, Abraham was demonstrating the ongoing work of salvation in his life by what he did. Not just by what he believed. Because what he did authenticated what he believed. He so trusted in God, it says in the scriptures, that he believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead. Something he'd never seen. We're on the other side of the raising from the dead. Abraham had never seen that. James says, that's what real faith looks like. That's real saving faith. By the way, in the scriptures, in these verses, see, he says here in 21 that that Abraham was considered righteousness for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. And then in verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. These both realities are held in tension in scripture and it must be held this way. And the first is this, that faith can never be allowed to rest in its self-sufficiency, absent of activity. In other words, he was reckoned righteous for what he did. But likewise, held in tension, faith can never be allowed to boast on its own works. Because righteousness was credited to Abraham before circumcision, before he had done one thing to obey God. Because he trusted him. And, and um, in, our, in the giant tent called Christianity, we have strayed to the margins of these two places that must be held in tension. Catholic theology is over here on the idea of uh, faith is determined on our work, on our deeds. Taken to the extreme, it's an all-me religion. Evangelicals have tended to, to take ourselves over to the other side and say... This thing is all about God. And yes, it is. 
But if I, if I take that to the extreme, I run the risk, James says, of thinking that this one-time, apparently momentary decision to, to believe in God and, and to never see any change occur in my life, which means I've never really embraced salvation, I've never really welcomed the saving work of God in my life, that's not real faith. Faith is to hold these two intention. That in fact, by grace, we are saved by an undeserving act of God, not because of anything I did or ever will do. For by grace we are saved through faith, not of works, lest I should boast. But we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do works accompanying that true faith. Both those realities are spelled out in Ephesians chapter 2. Right together, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 10. Paul and James standing back to back, giving us a full picture of what saving faith is really about. And so that's why James can say, in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In other words, the showing validates the justifying. Not by itself faith, but faith that fully embraces the living Christ and he works in our lives. Now, in case they weren't sold out on the deal yet, he talks about Rahab, and with this we'll wind it up. And by the way, he says, in the same way, again, was not even Rahab the prostitute? Wait a second. Rahab the prostitute. Now, if they were having trouble with poor people coming into their church, imagine how much trouble they would be having with prostitutes coming into their church. James... He's not thinking that they don't remember about Rahab, but he has to include it here just to kind of drill in the point. Just to see how their sensitivities were at that moment. Rahab the prostitute is, by the way, our example of saving faith. And the Pharisees in the church are going, you got to be kidding. No, I'm not kidding, James says. Rahab, by her words... Or sorry, Rahab's words were proven genuine by her works. What were her words? In Joshua chapter 2, verse 11, when the spies came to her, uh, she says this, For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. She was part of a pagan nation that the Israelites were going to conquer. She was in Jericho, and she heard of the the reputation of the true God of heaven. And she says, as for me, I want you to know that I believe that this God is the true God. He's really God in heaven. He's really the God of the earth. He's really the God. Well, that's nice, Rahab. That's your words. But is it all talk? Or is there some action to this? What was the action? She took two of God's servants and at the risk of her life, hid them. Validating 
that she really believed that the God of heaven was the God of heaven. So by the way, James says, Abraham and Rahab. Abraham feeds God and Rahab gives shelter to God's servants. That is true saving faith. He winds it up with this. As the body, I guess he just felt we needed one more logical discussion. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Now he gives the, saves the most dramatic for the last, I think, in terms of graphic pictures. He says, once the breath of life, once the spirit Once the nefesh leaves a body, it's just a corpse. Likewise, if deeds are taken out of faith, that faith is a corpse. It's dead. It's not faith. Real action always accompanies real faith. Otherwise, your faith is a corpse. Can that kind of faith, corpse kind of faith, save you? The rhetorical answer is, of course not. So James points out, I have illustrated it by charity. I have illustrated it by demons. I have illustrated it by heroes of faith of the past, Abraham and Rahab. I have demonstrated it by a physical body. What part of faith, genuine faith requiring deeds, do you not get? Real action always accompanies real faith. Act of trust in God justifies your claim to faith. Christ said he came came to give us life and to give it to us abundantly. Dead and useless do not describe abundance. Deeds never without faith... But never faith without deeds either. Father, uh, we, we offer this back to you again this morning because it's your word. I pray that you would take the description, the, the um, instruction, the explanation this morning. And you would cause it to bear fruit in our lives. Lord, the concern of any of us who have genuine saving faith is that there might be some people who are among us who do not have saving faith. They have some quasi-faith. Oh, they claim to believe in God. In fact, they can even talk a good story about Jesus and salvation and all of that, but but there's no evidence in their life. There's, there's no mercy. There's no compassion. There's no sacrificing in the name of Christ. There's, there's no seeking to, to grow in the Lord. There's no exercising of giftedness in the work of Jesus Christ. There's, there's no steadiness in the worship of God and the gathering with God's people. Can that faith save? 
So our Father, I pray this morning as we reflect upon this, we realize that there is by itself faith, and this is dead and useless. There is demonic faith, which is dangerous and useless. And then there is saving faith because it works. Father, I pray that... um, the Spirit of God would do a full examination this morning. Full examination of the evidence that we are putting forth to make a case for our own saving faith. James says, I will show you my faith by what I do. Jesus himself said, by their fruit, you will know them. And he prunes the fruitful that they might bear much fruit. So, Father, today I pray for your convincing, convicting work of the Spirit in our lives. For this is an important watershed. As our eyes are still closed and we're just in this time and space of reflection with God what would onlookers say about your life do they see the evidences of of Christ faith do you make it obvious to them what do you know that needs to stop happening in your life because it isn't deeds of faith What do you know that needs to start up in your life? Because it is a reflection of Christ in your life. But you're not not participating. What's the evidence that you have the real thing? Make sure that you're confident. Examine yourself. Let me read to you what Paul says about the examination. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Father, I pray this morning that we would not fail the test. Now take it from a group statement to an individual statement. I pray that I will not fail the test. Oh Lord, may I have saving faith. Granted by grace, embraced by your power, and lived out by your power. But lived out as evidence of the real. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name.